I had mentioned before that I had spent my first two years of high school in a private Christian school. I could probably spend hours of time talking about my time at this school, but I'll try to pare it down to the highlights, or, as we will see, lowlights. I had mentioned before that my parents had been continually warned, for years, by Christian radio personalities and Christian publications that America's public school system was a problem for the correct and proper instruction of children. In fact, my parents had chose to homeschool their kids for a single year, which went, in my opinion, poorly. Lack of structure and having three lazy kids as students was a bad recipe for a successful educational experience. But a couple of years later, my dad had been contacted and asked if he wanted to be on the board of a private, non-denominational Christian school, and he agreed, and asked me if I wanted to switch to that school. To my recollection, my siblings were not offered the same choice, but I agreed. If you were to ask me why I had agreed, I'm not quite sure. I don't remember feeling pressured, but maybe it was just something to spice up my life. Who knows? The school was to meet in a very rural building that had housed a series of failed businesses, probably because they ran afoul of the first three rules of desirability of a property. Location, location, location. So I had just mentioned the non-denominational part. In the area that we were living, there were a few other private parochial schools, but they were all Catholic. And to people whose Sunday services consisted of shouting and jumping and waving your hands in the air, let me tell you that the Catholics were to be seen with some measure of suspicion. The veneration of saints smacked of idolatry to us. Confession seemed like a good idea, but the idea that clergy could somehow be involved with the absolution of sins, that seems blasphemous. I'm sure there were dozens of nitpicky dogmatic and theological issues that we used to cast doubt on whether or not Catholics were real Christians. And because of all of that, I wanted to make quite sure that this wasn't a Catholic school where old nuns would hit my hands, which I had been led to believe was the M.O. for Catholic schools. I was assured it wasn't. It was a non-denominational Protestant school. My dad told me what he thought was true, but in reality he had been lied to, or at least misled. The overwhelming majority of the students and staff of the school came from a single large church. In many ways, direct and indirect, this imposed a tremendous amount of ideas, not just theological ones, into the curriculum. I'll talk more about that in a bit. My freshman year, I spent infatuated with a girl that went to the school. We were comrades de guerre as we both discovered that neither of us held the same level of seriousness in this whole church stuff as some of our peers did. She had a maybe boyfriend who did take things seriously and really hated me, and I can't blame him. I made no effort to conceal how much I was interested in his girlfriend, or maybe girlfriend. It was complicated. He took spiritual things seriously. I remember him telling me about predestination, or the idea that because God knows everything, then he also knows who is going to be going to heaven. This struck me as a difficult idea to hold in my head. If the goal of this whole church business was to get into heaven, and people that didn't go to heaven would go to hell, why wouldn't God just skip to the end and take the people who'd go to heaven to heaven and take the people who'd go to hell to... Well, wait a minute. If God knew who was going to hell, why would we be wasting our time and theirs to try to reach them? And an extrapolated idea, what does an all-knowing God mean for the idea of free will? I think that older people with serious adult responsibilities would consider these kind of questions in the same vein of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin and get on with the life that is immediately in front of them, 
but a freshman high schooler, I had nothing better to do with my time than worry myself to death over things that couldn't be understood. When taking this to my parents, I remember them waving the question off. The idea that people didn't have choice in life ran contrary to their reading of the Bible, that people could make up their minds and change their behavior. That is the whole point, after all, isn't it? I'd counter with the argument that if God knows everything that has and will happen, how could predetermination not to be true? And they'd ask me if I'd done my homework or not, and maybe I should get on with it then. That girl has a mother who was a teacher at the school for very young children, and as the year wore on, so did her job. I had the impression that she had regular disagreements with the administration of the small school, but that was in the realm of adults, and I didn't get the details. The girl also had a brother, a couple of years older than her, that also went to the school. He told me once, in a rather matter-of-fact way, while we were loitering on the swing set, that if suicide wasn't a guaranteed one-way trip to hell, he would have done it already. I started to question why he thought that it was a one-way trip to hell, and then caught myself and figured it was best to leave it. One day, myself and that girl had missed the day of school before, and a teacher had told us that we had missed a short video that the class had watched, and we would be tested on it, so we would need to watch it now, while the rest of the class read something else. The school only had two VCRs, one with a wheeled cart with a TV that was being used by another class, and then a small TV connected to a VCR in a small room off of the dining room. We took the default choice, took our seats in that small dark room, and pressed the play button. About ten minutes into this video, the door was opened by a teacher who was not expecting to see us there, and we were immediately and angrily dragged out to the principal's office. This was such a big deal, parents were called, and the fact that we had misunderstood the instructions from our teacher as to the time and place of watching the video was inconsequential to the trouble we were now in. If you're wondering what possible trouble we were in, you're in fine company. It was a mystery to both of us as well. A young man and a young lady in a dark room alone together was not to be done, and was certainly inappropriate. I asked why it was inappropriate, and how was I to know it was inappropriate, and the answers given were not answers at all. I kept at it, which I think was digging my grave deeper, but I wanted either a straight answer or, just as good, a description of what actual sin I could have been doing with her in that dark, small room that I missed out on. Was it sex? Could sex have been happening? Remember, sex was a big deal, but because we could never frankly talk about what sex was, I, I had no idea. I don't remember our punishment, but we carried an air of pariahs around with us for some weeks afterwards. The standards of academics at the school were mixed. History seemed to be on par with what my public school friends were learning about. English was above average. Our English teacher was passionate and assigned classical American literature and never stood in our way of additional reading regardless if it was Christian or otherwise. I remember math being worksheets handed out by a teacher who may or may not have understood the fundamentals themselves. But if there was one area where the school did its students the greatest sin, it would be science, specifically biology. My parents seemed to be under the impression, as most level-headed Christians are, is that the overwhelming evidence of the world is millions of years old and that life evolved from small things to big things over those millions and millions of years, is fact. The story of God's creation of the world in six working days is a poetic explanation of the entry of evil into the world and or a good way of explaining how the world came into being to an ancient, illiterate culture that had to have it explained to them to not have sex with their close relatives. 
This school was run by people that belonged to a church that thought the world was thousands of years old and fossils were either a result of Noah's flood or a trick by the devil. The theory of evolution was something dreamed up by God's enemies to chip away at his absolute authority over everything in the universe. And let's not forget, it's a theory, and smart people only believe in facts and laws, not theories, right? I cannot understate the immense amount of time that that school had its students read through material that explained how carbon dating was circular thinking and flawed, or how a particular fossil was found in the wrong stratum, which means that this one weird thing proves that the fossil record is a fraud, or that genetic mutations only cause problems, so how could genetic mutations create better and more complex organisms? My personal favorite objection is how could we believe in evolution if no one has ever seen it? Despite that argument not holding water, if it was to be applied to, say, Jesus, I knew at that time that it was a problem. Any of these kids, if they were going on to higher education, were to pursue a career that required any even small measure of understanding of biology, this school had not just wasted their time, but had hobbled them. All of this, quote, science, unquote, was taught by a man that I'll call Donald. He was a member of that same large church and spoke with a self-righteous authority about matters of science, theology, and, well, frankly, everything. I feel that anyone who claims to be a Christian, the first thing that they had to do to accept that they are a sinner and claim that they needed Jesus is to do one thing, admit that they were wrong. However, Donald belonged to a large collection of Christians I knew at the time in which they could not admit to being wrong about anything. This was born from the constant reminder that a soldier of God must have unshakable faith and because all things are God's things, they're never wrong about anything. Donald would also talk about other religions with a condescending, laughing dismissal, as if these people surely must have read and understood the Bible, but they're idiots and have signed up for some other god and they're fine with going to hell. He also talked about how many cultures have legends of worldwide floods, which was evidence that Noah's flood definitely happened. Donald shot himself in the foot with that one, at least in regards to me, because as an early adopter of the internet, I turned to independent research and found out that he was correct. There are other cultures that have myths of worldwide floods. They also have myths of crucified gods, too, and here I had thought that Christianity had a monopoly on them. Turns out, we didn't even have a claim on crucified gods who sacrifice themselves to themselves. Odin comes to mind. Years later, I'd be introduced to the works of Carl Jung and his ideas about the collective unconscious, and I remember these discoveries. I'm still not sure if these two connect, but it does seem unusual that distant cultures had similar myths. Donald had argued that this was God's effort to connect to all of these people, and some of these people had just got it a little wrong. Donald had a story about him coming to Jesus. When you were an evangelical and you were born into it, you were really a second-class citizen because everyone needed that story. We'd call it your testimony, which, if you're good enough, would put you in the same category as Jesus' disciples as the Apostle Paul. Donald's story was about alcohol and drugs, which as someone who was a bit older and more worldly, I'd look back on some of his drug stories and think, uh, that's not how that drug works, but good effort for the story. The second part is a vision, hammered into your head by God. This part of the story always had the elements of him going to bed, sometimes drunk, and being given a vision where his bed would tilt upright with him in it over the gaping maw of hell itself. 
and this is where he would be going if he were to die at this moment. The third act is taking that vision seriously and turning your life around, ride or die style for Jesus. The details of the story did change, sometimes wildly, over the couple of years that I knew him, as I heard him tell the story many times. One of his consistent concluding elements is that God had blessed slash cursed him if he listened to secular rock and roll music, he would immediately become sick to his stomach. As someone who rode in the school van with him on many occasions with the radio playing, I can let you know that God seemed to be very inconsistent with the application of that blessing or curse. Donald also told us that he was BFFs with the general manager at the Pizza Hut in our town, and that manager would unplug the jukebox when he came in, and the town was filled with godly people. Shortly afterwards, my family went to that Pizza Hut, and it just so happened that the general manager was waiting on us because they were short-staffed. I let that person know that I knew Donald. Well, maybe they were a little confused because maybe they were busy, but darn it, they just had no idea who I was talking about. I, with the optimistic enthusiasm of a teenager that didn't know they had been lied to, reminded them of the guy for which they unplugged the jukebox. I was told they'd never unplug the jukebox. How else would they have music for the people eating there? The second year of the school's operation, it moved from the claustrophobic building it was housed into a much larger and beautiful property that had fields and woods. The property was home to a Christian campground. Who knew that was a thing? But in the year I spent there, I never saw evidence of anyone camping there. The girl who was my heart's desire left the school after her family had had enough of the nonsense from that place. I complained to my dad about the school's rejection of evolution, and he waved it off and told me to get good grades. He had told me the same thing a few years before when I had complained about having to learn geometry because no one could explain it to me how I'd ever use it. I think that's a common approach to parenting for obstinate learners who can't defend the education their kid is getting, but are unwilling to try and fight a system they know they won't change. But my dad did seem to have a growing sour taste about the school. The principal of the school would regularly be called to quell an unruly classroom and would use two weapons. First, he would loudly pray to the God of all creation to remove the spirit of rebellion from these disobedient students. Second, he would assign copying of Bible passages as punishment. The weaponizing of prayer and scripture didn't seem to sit well with my dad. The principal could have just told us to shut up or we'd be asked to stay after school and our parents would be called in, but instead, the divine guilt trip. There had been a large amount of turnover from the teaching staff from the first year to the second year, which also didn't look good. The school had, in my opinion, hired anyone who showed any interest regardless of qualification. Fortunately, our quality English teacher stayed on. Unfortunately, Donald stuck around too and continued his nonsense, likely serving as the driving force behind the flagging faith in Christianity for many of the students who were bright enough to see through his willful ignorance of reality. The math teacher was replaced by a gem enthusiast who went from quiet instruction to full-throated screaming at the drop of a hat in regards to discipline. The Spanish teacher was a nice man, fluent in English and Spanish, but as far as teaching went, relied on workbooks to set structure for the course. I passed this class with a D. The following year, when I returned to public schools, I dropped out of Spanish too the second week after realizing that I was too far behind on a language that I was genuinely interested in learning to be able to keep up. The science teacher was a qualified scientist who could not hold the respect of any of his students, 
and would several times a week give up on teaching a classroom that would not be quiet enough for him to do so, and call on the principal to pray to God that we would behave enough for the man to do his job. This fellow did what he could to sneak in a touch of evolution, too, likely as a result of his inability to corral the wild devil teenagers in his classroom. On fair weather days, he would lead us on nature walks on one of the many wooded trails on the property. During one of these walks, I fell behind the rest of the group with someone I'll call Marcus. He offered me a cigarette and we kept far enough back to smoke and talk about the things most important to teenage boys. When we'd get back to school, sometimes we would be interrogated by the teacher as to why we smelled like cigarettes, but usually he would just give us the side eye and move on, happy that he got through the day without his blood pressure going through the roof. Marcus was one of the only non-white persons in the school and likely one of the first times that I realized that, at least in my corner of America, the evangelical church did little to condemn anything other than the most overt forms of racism. The student body and several of the staff and parents, I discovered, presumed that Marcus was a charity case student because he was non-white and certainly was targeted more frequently for discipline than his white peers. In fact, the cigarettes he probably would have been expelled for had I not been his white shield. Subtle forms of racism were just fine, and we were never asked to search ourselves for prejudices against the people who God also created, who had a different image than us white people. Marcus and I had become friends, and I'd spend the night at his house, and we'd sneak out and wander the town after midnight smoking and talking about life. A couple years later, I'd try to join the United States Marine Corps and was disqualified for a health condition, then 9-11 happened and they probably would have taken me. His little brother joined up with the USMC and went off to defend America in a war that didn't make sense to me as to why America was there. And he came home in a box. Our town named a bridge over a creek after him. Marcus became depressed, got involved with drugs, and was jailed a few times, and I lost track of him. I hope you found peace. The Spanish teacher announced that he would be putting together a mission trip to South America and wanted to know who was interested. I had actually been interested in seeing foreign lands and doing some good for some people, just not under the banner of corporate team mania. And there was a girl that I liked that was going too. It just so happened that my parents had come into a little bit of money from an inheritance, so I could go without begging from friends and family. We'd be building a school, that was the plan, but we arrived just as the El Nino rains got started, and I spent most of my week's trip hauling people's stuff from their homes through floodwaters to pickup trucks. I saw a horse with the skin ripped off its face emerge from a flooded field, an image that haunted my dreams for years. I guessed that it had stripped its own face off because it had been bridled to something now underwater, and getting free came with that cost. Seeing muscle and bone off an exhausted horse's face in a flooded plain while in a strange land, well, that was unexpected and foreign to me. I think that horse might have actually been one of the lucky ones in that country at that time. The males of my group were asked to stay the night in a warehouse with supplies to deter thieves. After seeing food riots from desperate places and desperate times, I think that in retrospect, I had wound up in a situation that would have been a prime situation for getting murdered. Thankfully, that didn't happen. I ate strange foods. My weak advances towards the girl from my school went nowhere, but I did get my first kiss from a girl named Noelia, who was infatuated with the American foreign boy who couldn't speak her language, and she couldn't speak mine. A couple days later, when she was told we'd be leaving, she slapped my face pretty hard, and that was also a first for me. 
I nearly drowned once, carrying a box of people's stuff through waist-deep muddy water when I stepped into a hole that I couldn't see and the water went over my head. That was a more meaningful baptism for me. When I returned home, I was asked to give my testimony to my bored classmates. I'd expected a hero's welcome, but they didn't care. I tucked the plane tickets into my wallet where they'd stay until a couple of years later. On the dark driveway of that girl who I had gone on the trip with, I pulled them out and told her that I kept them because of her and I loved her, and that was the first time I kissed a girl. Her family hated me for reasons that were opaque to me, so that didn't go anywhere. Over the following years, I went on a few more of these mission trips, including one to Haiti before the earthquake and one to rural Chihuahua, Mexico, both of the places where I saw deep poverty. All of these trips were billed as construction trips. When it came to mission trips, there are typically two kinds for unskilled people. Construction or evangelism. There are other kinds, like medical ones, for people who know what they're doing. I don't care to tell the hungry or homeless about how they just need more Jesus in their lives instead of rather to do something of the things that Jesus had asked of his followers. However, on the last trip, I was in Haiti and watching Haitians mix cement or whatever other things us young white people were doing and remembered that I had paid over $1,000 just for my plane ticket. If I had instead cut a check and sent it to the organization responsible for the construction of the school, how many hours of skilled Haitian labor would that have bought instead of me showing up there and me being unqualified to stack two bricks on top of each other? I concluded that week-long mission trips are frequently just poverty tourism for privileged white people to come home and pat themselves on the back and tell their friends about how good we have it and we should be more thankful. Now, the folks that go for a long period of time and form relationships and get some work done, well, that's something else, but yeah, the week trips for teenagers, mm-mm. The following year, I had my parents move me back to public schools. The school's plans for getting properly accredited were going nowhere, and that caused me issues when it would be time to go to college. And my complaints to my parents about pretty much all that I had just talked about had stacked up. A couple years later, I had gone back to that school to say hello to the handful of teachers and staff that I actually liked and found none of them. Turnover again had been so aggressive that I had literally no familiar faces. A couple years after that, school folded, and I didn't feel bad about that at all. The school had taught me that being a Christian consisted mainly of looking down your nose at other people and ridiculing them, and had nearly ruined the whole idea of Christianity for me at that point. Good riddance to bad trash. 